This podcast is brought to you by RMA, the Risk Management Association. RMA's sole purpose is to advance the use of sound risk management principles in the financial services industry. Learn more at rmahq.org. Hello, I'm Pete Tanish, Director of Information Security and Risk for the Small Business Financial Exchange. Alongside me is Mike Farley, Senior Manager of Strategic Initiatives. Hey, Pete. Thanks for having me. So a little bit about SBFE. Formed in 2001, the Small Business Financial Exchange is a highly trusted business data exchange that is governed by the small business lending industry and managed independently from credit reporting agencies. Small business lenders rely on SBFE's distinctive information security and data governance controls. SBFE attracts lenders of all sizes and types from across the industry, making SBFE data a rich, robust information source to enable sound credit risk management decisions. SBFE members leverage SBFE's best-in-class data management tools and the multi-certified vendor model to receive SBFE data-driven products, which aid in effectively managing risk and delivering efficiency within their organizations. So both Mike and I have been working on a fraud-related project over the last several months, along with a fraud consultant out of Charlotte, North Carolina, Jerry Tileman. Jerry Tileman is co-founder of Greenway Solutions, where he leads their risk management practice. Jerry is an expert in fraud prevention and fraud control testing. Since 2004, he's been leading fraud-related consulting engagements with many of the world's leading banks, and more recently with financial technology and cryptocurrency firms. Jerry's area of expertise includes identity proofing, authentication, transaction monitoring, and claims management. Welcome, Jerry. Thanks, Pete. Good to be here. So a few months ago, Jerry and his colleague, Armand Sarkissian, embarked on a journey to dig deep into PPP lending fraud. I think the collective industry had an idea that things could and did go sideways with PPP, but we didn't know to what extent. Jerry and Armand rolled up their sleeves and began working on uncovering linkages between PPP borrowers and known violators, resulting in the identification of several cases where things went very, very wrong. Jerry, do you wanna add some more color to your research and how it went down? So when the program rolled out, we just knew that there was going to be some level of abuse. We just didn't know how much. And as a small business, we had the opportunity to actually go through the PPP process. So we knew what it entailed in terms of the information that we needed to provide and what the parameters were for being able to get money from the PPP program. And with that as a baseline, we were able to start thinking, if we were fraudsters, how might we try to abuse this program? And it kind of started from that kernel of an idea to a more full-blown investigation to kind of think through and realize how much fraud was happening. It feels like a good dateline, dateline episode, if you ask me. But um, so I know you started this research. What, what was the time frame? Can you start with that? Yeah, we, we started investigating it in the, the spring of 2021. And it was really kind of driven by some of the um, Department of Justice uh, affidavits that came out where they had identified several people that had already been exposed as fraudsters in this area. And we were able to use that as our starting point for uncovering how big of a problem this was. Right. And I know there were some really cool linkages. So I know you started out with some documentation from the DOJ, and then you really pieced together this story. Can you go into a little bit about how that happened? When you think about a small business, a small business, if it's legitimate, 
is going to sign up at a secretary of state database in whatever state they're associated with. So there has to be some information that's known about that business itself. And then from there, what you start doing is you start piecing together the other types of documents that you would need to be able to apply for a PPP loan. And what was interesting is that we thought that there might be two types of abuse here. One would be a legitimate business claiming to be much bigger than they are. And that would entail payroll records or tax documents that are doctored to make them look much larger. And another would be a company that just was recently formed, even though you had to be in business for over a year, but was formed for the purposes of perpetrating PPP loan fraud. And what we found was that fraudsters were sort of equal opportunity. They did these fraudulent uh, actions as both legitimate companies claiming to be much larger than they were, as well as fictitious companies that were created for the sole purpose of defrauding the, the PPP program. Right. And so I, I know you um, also linked your information with the SBF, SBA loan database. So the PPP EIDL database as well as some reconnaissance using Google. And I, I know you pieced together three really solid cases that you presented to our board of directors. Did you want to go into any of those? You know, the essence of it was that people who did this, and the, the MO is, is that generally people do it once and they realize, hey, I did it once, I can do this again. And they generally start small. So in one case, we, we found somebody who had created a company. And the first time with that particular company, he decided to go for a relatively small loan from the PPP, uh, I think um, $300,000. And he was able to get this. And so he thought, hey, can I try this again? And maybe at a different bank. And so in this case, uh, he applied again at a different bank for about the same amount of money, another $300,000, and he was able to get that, right? And so then he thinks, well, if I recruit some of my friends, I could do this trick again and maybe a little bit larger. And so he goes back to the first bank, this time with some changed information and applies for $600,000 and he gets it. And so then he goes to another bank and he gets another 600,000. And then they start thinking, wow, this is way too easy. Let's go for something really large. And then all of a sudden you see the amounts jumping from say 300,000 to 600,000 to 1.7 million. And what's interesting is that a $1.7 million PPP loan is actually very, very large. And so it was sort of the greed bug that kicked in and it was the 1.7 million that sort of got them on the radar of the Department of Justice, as well as the banks, right? And they were the ones that probably referred this to the Department of Justice. But it was sort of that greed bug that, that allowed them to be flagged and caught. But you see that once they learned how the whole process worked, they thought this was just too easy. And they started applying for more and more. It's interest was interesting to me when you th think about how quickly this program came about. That that is the PPP program. Uh, how fast people reacted did and were able to basically be there, ready to go when the program went live to start attempting to engage in fraudulent behavior. Were you surprised by that, or you know, was there? Did you guys 
kind of see this coming? Do we see it coming? Yeah, I think I think we believe that anytime there's that big a pot of money that's out there, and I think in this case, we're talking like 300 to 500 billion dollars, right? That was going to attract fraudsters. And so what was interesting in one of the DOJ complaints was that the fraudsters had already been setting up a bunch of fake companies at a bank in Texas for doing fraudulent things with other payment instruments. But when PPP hit, they had already created, let's say one, in this particular instance, a hundred different straw companies that were out there. And when PPP hit, they were thinking, this is gold. We already have the companies created. We've already established them uh, with checking accounts at a bank. Now all we need to do is create the doctored, documents that show that this company has 27 employees and this company has 22. So in, in essence, they had been kind of creating the context from which to do PPP fraud, not knowing that there was ever going to be a PPP program, but they had the basic building blocks in place, which were the fake companies and the checking accounts. And with that in place, they were able to move rapidly and they did and they exploited this. And so we, we weren't surprised. And we, we, I guess we weren't also surprised that the basic infrastructure was in place, the, the fake companies and the fake documents. Now, what we were a little bit surprised by was the fact that the identity proofing controls weren't robust enough to be able to catch this because you didn't have to do a lot of digging to, to see, oh, that's, that's not a good company. But I think that the program was rolled out in such a way that it was intended to get money into the economy very, very fast. And so perhaps in creating these uh, new portals for PPP loans, yeah, some things had to give because the money had to get out there fast. That was the mandate. That was the policy from the government. And um, some corners were cut in terms of the normal fraud prevention controls. So it is a sort of a, a, a perfect storm of, of bad guys having some of the basic building blocks in place, and then a program that was designed to roll out very, very fast, meaning that all the robust controls weren't put in place and weren't tested enough. Yeah, we weren't surprised that the fraud was out there and the fraud was big. Okay, Jerry, if we go back to one of the cases that you presented to our board, you had done some joining, some pretty straightforward matching across data that you've pulled from the SBA EIDL database um, from the DOJ uh, wrongdoers that were listed. You took their addresses and names and um, cross-checked and did some matching and found quite a few repeat offenders. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? I think some of the yeah. some of the documentation had folks that were thought to have a couple loans and you found way more. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. So we went to the DOJ complaints or affidavits and we saw that they were charging a particular bad actor uh, with three fraudulent PPP loans. So we were like, okay, that's cool. Let's do a little bit more digging and see, you know, is there more for this particular individual or any of the data related to this guy? And one of the things that the SBA did was they made the entire PPP loan database uh, available. Anybody could download it. So there were like 
millions of entries in this database. And so we just took a couple of key fields like the person's name, the business name, the business address, the business phone number, and we did some basic link analysis. And, and what we started to find was that that data, like a phone number might not be associated with that particular person on another loan, but it might, that phone number appears on another loan with another person. And now that we have another person, we have other information that we can start linking uh, within the database. And we started to find that these individuals who might only be charged with three bad loans in the DOJ complaint were actually affiliated with many, many others. And so that just sort of piqued our curiosity. And we were like, well, can we take that same data? And it looks like these guys are operating in Florida. And it turns out that we can go in and we can search the Florida Secretary of State database and we can say, hey, is this person or is this address or this phone number associated with any other businesses in the Secretary of State database? And we were like, oh, yeah, there's a lot more businesses associated with this data. And then we were able to go back into the, the SBA's database for PPP loans and go, yep, this person, you know, the DOJ's only got three this person's got 30 that are out there. And it was just amazing how a handful of bad actors could accumulate so much money just amongst themselves or amongst this friend network that they had started to create. So um, again, it, it's, it's classic behavior in the sense that they started small, they did this, they experimented with it, they couldn't believe how much money they could get. And the greed bug kicked in and all of a sudden it just proliferated. So I read that in the New York Times that 76 billion of the programs, 800 billion was considered fraud. So I know banks were under pressure to lend to get the money out to small business. And then the process relaxed some of their controls. I mean, it's safe to say, right, that banks today, if it was the normal underwriting process, would have caught most of these instances. I, I, I think in that article, one of the things that they they did was they they bifurcated between the banks that were doing the direct lending and then fintech firms that were in front of the smaller banks that were doing the lending. And that I think one of the things that they talked about in the article was that most of the fraud was coming from the fintechs that put themselves in between the PPP customer and some of the smaller banks that were part of the program. The big banks were collaring the fraud risk primarily by only providing PPP loans to existing customers. And they did a pretty good job in, in their portals of collecting information and probably building some rules behind the scenes that were looking at certain data they had about existing customers and looking at the amount of the PPP loan request and seeing if they if they jived, right? Just maybe based on average balance in the account over the last 12 months or something like that. But what happened on the other side with the FinTechs was there was a rush to create these portals and to be processing these people for smaller banks. And I believe that what may have happened there is that the smaller banks may have believed that there was more identity verification and identity proofing happening at the FinTech and that what they were getting was a 
vetted loan request that they just had to supply the funds for. What that article suggested was about 75% of the fraud was happening in that particular category. And really, I think it was also associated with the third wave of PPP. So by this time, the fraudsters had figured out, hey, here's everything I need. And the source of you know, the best or, or the, the place where I have the highest probability of getting these funds fraudulently is going to be through these third-party intermediaries, the, the, the fintechs that are in front of the smaller banks. And so they put all of the mechanisms in place that they needed to do it. They targeted who they thought would be the easiest path to get their money, and they executed pretty well. And 76 billion out of 800, I mean, it's almost 10%. It's a ton of money. And um, in hindsight, yeah, more, more identity proofing, more identity verification should have been put in place. But again, the policy was get the money out there. And so I, you know, I, I'm sort of smiling here thinking about it. Well, on the one hand, the, the fraudsters probably spent the money. There were a lot of guys that were going out buying Ferraris and boats and things like that. So if it was intended to stimulate the economy, you could check that box. But obviously, you, you wanted to go to the businesses that needed this money as opposed to bad actors. And yeah, I think we all we all agree more could have been done on the front end. So would you, I mean, it's safe to say then this reliance on these third-party fintechs to do the work because a lot of uh, lenders didn't, didn't have the, the web application or weren't digitized to handle this. So they had to rely on those, those third parties, which then kind of put us in that, in that awkward position. The, the, the problem is that just the level of vetting that probably should have been done just could not have been done given how fast uh, everything was rolling. And usually these third-party reviews take a lot of time. And I think that, um, you know, we were kind of operating at warp speed and I think just basic assumptions were made and, and therefore it created the opportunity for the fraudsters. The third phase, do you have any idea how it changed from the first phase and, and what changes were made by the lenders? The, the third phase was, was tied to an extension of PPP for businesses that lost money during the pandemic. So not everybody was eligible for that third wave. And, and again, I think that what had happened was that the fintechs had filled the void in terms of creating the portal. And the bad guys knew where they needed to go and what they needed to do to be able to say that they qualified for this third wave. So I think that they were, they were the bad guys were watching what the government was doing as, as much as, as the banks and the fintechs were. And I think that again, just that sort of rapid rush to be able to provide service, sort of, you know, call it a, a pay and chase model right? Let's just get the money out there and we'll sort it later, right? We'll sort it during the forgiveness period. And so, and the forgiveness period isn't really over yet. So I don't know. My, my thought is, is that 76 billion might be low because once we start sorting through all of the, the companies that needed to ask for forgiveness, but neglected to do so, 
that number might be higher. And, and some of that might be fraud and some of it might just be businesses that are no longer in business now that they failed during, the, during that time period. So Jerry, if we could hit rewind and do it all over, what's the number one thing you would tell the team drafting the PPP loan requirements? I think a lot of financial institutions and fintechs run into this problem. And, and that is they build things without thinking about how they're going to be abused. And I think that when you're building that portal and when the SBA was building its database, they had to give some consideration from day one, how will people abuse this and what simple things can we put in place to stop that abuse from the get-go? Most people aren't trained to think that way. Most people are trained to think that everybody's going to do the right thing. They're not going to do the bad thing. They're not thinking that 10% of all this money is going to go to fraudsters. And that if you can build into the front end product development process, that mindset that this is, a, this is a financial instrument and all financial instruments will have some level of fraud associated with them. So what are the major risks and what are the things that we can do that aren't going to massively delay this to be able to catch that fraud? And so when you think about the SBA, one of the beautiful things about it is that all that loan data was consolidated in one spot. So if you just did some basic link analysis, the moment that application came in, you take the person's name, you take the business name, the phone number, the address, the email address, and say, have I seen this anyplace else before? And if the answer is yes, you might want to say, I'm not going to approve this loan, or we're going to sort this loan out, and we're going to take a little bit more. We're going to take a harder look at this guy, right? You would have seen that, right? But if every loan is treated as, this is a good loan, let's pay this money out immediately without any other context about anything else that's in the loan database, then that's not a good thing. That's not the way you should do it. And I think that the lesson learned is, is that that upfront risk assessment associated with the product, right, the portal, and, and then what, what mitigating technologies, controls can we put in place to deal with those risks, I think could have saved a ton of money and a lot of chasing that's going to happen after the fact. Well, thanks, Jerry. I know Mike and I really enjoy working with you, and I really enjoyed uh, unpacking this PPP loan fraud and just wanted to say thanks to RMA for giving us an opportunity to, to record this. Thank you, Pete. Appreciate it.